Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Christians emphasize the deep spiritual meaning or transformative power of human suffering, they unwittingly transgress the authority of the scriptural God. Yes, you heard correctly. No need to rewind the tape. For those baptized into the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord's instruction, not human experience, must serve as our only reference point for understanding the world. Unlike so many human traditions filled with stories of heroes both victorious and tragic, uniquely, the biblical tale collects a group of anti-heroes around their unseen god, a protagonist who is repeatedly abused, ignored, defied, betrayed, cheated on, used, taken for granted, and acted against with extreme prejudice and violence, culminating in the execution of his son. In a world of human stories preoccupied with human suffering, human victims, and human heroes, the Bible presents an epic saga across the ages in which human beings, without exception, are the villains. And the invisible God of Scripture is repeatedly the only victim. When we accept this teaching, its judgment provides hope because it opens our eyes to the true nature of our relationship with those around us. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 474 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In theology, people love to talk about suffering because it puts them in the position of the prodigal son. People love the perspective of the prodigal son because it allows them to use their experience as their reference. When people can talk about their experience of suffering, their experience of darkness, they're able to make themselves into a kind of God. And over the years, Richard and I have talked about the victim complex, the martyr complex, the neurosis that afflicts our current generations, and I'm going to use it in the plural because I personally reject the way marketing culture tries to divide generations in the United States. The fact is, 
everyone thinks about themselves, they talk about themselves, and they try to look at everything, including scripture, from the perspective of themselves. Years ago, when I was first ordained, I gave a lecture called Judgment as Hope. And from the very beginning, dealing with Scripture's perspective, which is the proposition that judgment is hope, I faced pushback. And here, once again, in chapter 3 of Luke, we are confronted with this proposition. It is not our experience of suffering that is our teacher. It is God's judgment that is hope. Suffering could be a punishment. Suffering could be a witness. But suffering is no reference. Job suffered because God decided that he should suffer. It was no credit to him. If we make out of Job a textbook for an existentialism class at the university, it's no longer scripture. Here we have this beautiful text in Luke, which on one end begins with the statement, you brood of vipers, and now on the other end is sealed beautifully with yet another proposition of judgment as hope. John the Baptist spares no expense. Anyone hearing this text in 2023, if it were an actual conversation, would complain about how hard it is, how it makes them feel, why is he so mean, and would probably try to figure out what they could learn from their experience of John's difficult words. That's not the point. The question is, you are being put under judgment by John. What is the judgment teaching you? Because the judgment is fixed, it's beyond your reach, and it has nothing to do with your ego. That is how scripture works. You cannot pull it down into the wallowing pool of your self-referentiality. We have to be strict with ourselves. It's so easy to fall into the trap of this nonsense of the world according to me. It may be so if you're not dealing with Scripture, but if you're serious about Scripture, you have to eschew all of that. John has a clear commandment bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. That's what he's trying to do. This is what he's trying to have happen. And last time we talked about how John the Baptist, on the one hand, is speaking very similar words to the words he speaks in Matthew, but the backstories are completely different. In Matthew, the backstory is all about Jesus, but here in Luke, the backstory is about John and Jesus. There's a lot more about John's background in Luke and where he comes from, and the fact that he comes from parents who were loyal temple functionaries or came from the families of loyal temple functionaries and finds himself in the wilderness and is teaching this same teaching is significant because John wants the fruits from this brood of vipers. Why did you come here anyway? Well, now that you're here, I guess I got to do my job, which is to tell you to bring fruit worthy of repentance. And I've been working a lot on Joel these days, and Joel is interesting because it tells the people throughout chapter one to just lament, 
Lament, lament, lament, lament. All the people, the young people, the old people, the drunk people, the healthy people, the young women, the young men, the landowners, everyone. It's simply lament. It doesn't actually say to repent in chapter one, simply to lament. When you see the destruction that's happening, you're going to suffer. Chapter one is all about suffering because all the food is gone. But the weird thing is, Joel is telling a crowd of people starving from lack of food to declare a fast because the suffering, like you said, Father, is not a reference in itself. The suffering is only a reference when it is empowered by this word, by this scripture, and that is precisely what Joel does. Joel puts God as the reference. Otherwise, what happens? Oh, we have to come up with better pesticides to keep the locusts away. I guess our science hasn't advanced as far as we want it to. Let's blame science. No. No, Joel chapter 1 does not allow you to blame science. It's only God you can blame. God puts himself as the reference and his word as the reference. And just like John says, who warned you of the wrath to come? Well, it was scripture. John places scripture as the reference. We're going to see throughout this section that that's precisely what his job is. John sees himself as having a job to do, significantly in the line of his father, who was a priest, but he's bringing the word that was in the temple now to the wilderness to anyone who's coming. And sure enough, we have soldiers and publicans coming who are Roman employees. Roman employees are coming now. They don't bother listening at the temple. It just so happens they were listening to this guy out in the wilderness in the area of the Gentiles, and now he preaches his message. The minute your suffering or your experience of suffering becomes the reference, you become a deity. The minute your suffering or your experience of suffering becomes the reference, you become justified. That's the whole question in the book of Job, for example, which is the classic text that people mishear again and again and again. They want to make the book of Job about the experience of Job's suffering. But you could just as easily do it with Joel. It's a great example. If God, in your suffering, commands you to suffer, the point is, the reference is his commandment, which is unto instruction, which means with or without the suffering, it is his commandment that is unto life. It is his judgment that is unto life. So if you're sitting comfortably in your chair at Bible study, hearing Dr. Benton read a few verses in Hebrew from the book of Joel, thank your lucky stars that you're hearing the commandment to fast while you're munching on your bagel and sipping coffee because you can still hear the instruction. That's the beauty and the power of literature. If tragedy strikes you in life and you hear Dr. Benton reading a few verses in Hebrew from the book of Joel, don't say, oh, I'm learning so much from tragedy then you're being self-referential. Say, thanks be to God that Dr. Benton read a few verses in Hebrew from the book of Joel so that 
this tragedy I'm experiencing was infused with light and wisdom from the book of Joel. The commandment, the judgment is the reference. When something good happens in your life, when something bad happens in your life, good or bad according to you, which is human wisdom, which is folly, meaning whatever happens in your life, say, praise the Lord, subhanallah, and listen, pay attention, and hear the reading of the commandment. Because in all things, it is the judgment of the Lord recited here in Luke by John the Baptist that is the source of life and light and wisdom. If you accept the proposition of Scripture, that's it. Everything else is vain talk. We have to be strict with ourselves. Scripture, in its judgment, exposes the terror and the darkness and the ugliness in our deeds and in our human thoughts. It is the commandment that exposes us so that we don't judge the darkness and the terror and the ugliness in our neighbor and we can be with them and love them in whatever situation we encounter them. So let's be strict with ourselves, be strict with the way that we use terminology. Let's hold ourselves accountable to the one book that is good, written by the finger of the only one who is good, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is beautiful here, Richard, is that once again, the people were in this state of expectation. They were wondering, and the Greek word here is dialogizome, which is the exact antithesis of the monologue of the Lucan prologue. Luke is not in this dialogue. He is not in a debate, right? There's no debate. There's no dialogue in the Gospel of Luke. There is a monologue. So they're in this state of expectation in this exchange of human words because they're still looking for the wrong thing. I think it's a very clever choice of words by the author. If they were submitting to the five books of Moses, they wouldn't be asking John what they're supposed to be doing. If they were submitting to the five books of Moses, they would have accepted and acquiesced to John's judgment against them, the brood of vipers. They would have received his proposition that they obey the commandments of God. He just laid out the commandments very clearly in the previous verses. Instead, they're having this dialogue, this debate, this exchange of human words in their human hearts 
about John as to whether or not he is the anointed one. That's a big no-no scripturally. And of course, John answers them with a kind of impressive and ominous threat. You still don't get it, folks. There's somebody coming who's mightier than me, and I'm unworthy even to tie his shoes. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's a threat. And there's something at play here once again about the prophet and the content of the prophet's teaching. It's a play on the relationship between Paul and Christ in the New Testament. Because on the one hand, you can't lock Jesus down. You can't ontologize him as a book because Jesus carries the books of Moses to the Gentiles. You can't say he is the books of Moses. That's a kind of a ridiculous statement. He's the one who carries the teaching in the story. At the same time, Jesus, the one who carries the law of Moses as the Messiah, he himself is the content of Paul's teaching. So Paul has to decrease. John the Baptist has to decrease so that Christ can increase. But this play on increase and decrease, the one who is mightier, the one who is less, also is an allusion to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Because ultimately, you might say Jesus is the most mighty, but in the upside-down hierarchy of 1 Corinthians, that makes him the least of all. The second to the least is Paul. So here in Luke, the second to the least would be John the Baptist. All these things are going on here. It's very powerful, but you can't pull it out of these verses. You have to take it in context of the entire New Testament canon. These verses, 15 and 16, are very beautiful coupling sort of mini-narrative, Rich. This narrative of the people trying to figure out who this guy is. Now, this is the thing that's so confusing. He said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. And then the people, in response to John's question, say, hmm, is this the guy? Who is this guy? Where's this guy coming from? I want to know more about this guy. It's really the wrong question. He said, bring fruit worthy of repentance. It's very clear what the commandment is, what the question is. Who warned you of the wrath to come? That's a very clear question, too. But that's not the one they're dialoguing in their hearts about. They're dialoguing about whether this is the Christ, because they were waiting for the Christ. It's very strange. I mean, it's like, you know, in Old Testament class, Father Paul Tarazi tells us, read your darn Bibles. Just read your darn Bibles. For heaven's sake, read your darn Bibles. And then everyone goes back, and over dinner, they say, let's think about this Professor Tarazi. Like, is he a good professor or bad? Do we like him? Do we like his methods? Do we not like his methods? But the question is, are you reading your Bible or not? <laughs> your job is not to evaluate the professor. Your job is to do what the professor is telling you to do. This is the big discussion about whether this is the Christ and they've been waiting for him. But, you know, there is an unstated question here, too, which is what are they waiting for and why are they expecting this? Why is this such an important question that they have to dialogue in their hearts about this? That's just kind of latent in this. So then John answered 
this weird line of questioning in their hearts. No, I'm not. But the one who's coming is tougher than me. <laughs> I'm coming with water. He's coming with fire. He's coming with this holy wind that's going to knock your socks off. Okay. I'm Mr. Nice Guy. Now, that doesn't remind me of Father Paul. One of the famous lines I remember is when someone tried to come into the class late and was not allowed, Father Paul's response was, the Lord is merciful. I am not the Lord. Maybe Father Paul is meaner than the Lord. I don't know. But John the Baptist says the Messiah is going to be meaner than him. He's nicer than the Messiah. Listen to my words, John the Baptist is saying. Don't be so excited about your Messiah because he's going to be tough. I'm allowing you to get some practice runs in here first before the big race when he comes. Bring forth fruits of repentance now, and you'll get a better shot when the big guy comes, because I'm not the big guy. So listen to my words. Do what I'm telling you to do. Don't worry about who I am. That's not the question. The question is, will you bring forth these fruit? And will you listen to the one who warned you about the wrath to come? The wrath to come being the operative phrase, John frames baptism at the end of that last verse, Richard, and he positions the Holy Spirit with fire. He talks about a baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire. I think this is critical with respect to judgment. Most of our life as disciples of Christ, disciples of his teaching, as baptized Christians, is a life spent coming to terms with the one choice you have as a Christian, which is the choice to submit to Scripture and baptism. You spend the rest of your life trying to understand that one choice through submission to the teaching, to the commandment every day, the daily bread of hearing scripture every single day. That's why the Lord's Prayer really is the only prayer one should say. Give us this day our daily bread, the daily hearing and submission to scripture. That is the baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. It is daily judgment. It is difficult. It is painful. It is hard. That is the interrogation by the commandment, that is the judgment. That is what we're talking about when we talk about coming face to face with what's wrong with the human condition so that we can be merciful to our neighbor. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with his unquenchable fire. That is such a difficult statement if we are honest, if we are strict with ourselves and we are open to submitting to the will of God, to his teaching, his instruction here in the text. It is referring to a teaching that we heard in the Gospel of Matthew, the separating of the wheat and the chaff. It's difficult to separate the two. But here in this example in Luke, we are at the point of the harvest where he has the winnowing fork and he can now clear his threshing floor. The time has come to gather the wheat and to separate it from the chaff. The one is to be burned and the other is to be put into the barn. It's just an unpleasant teaching. 
And the funny thing is, it's not happening. He's telling you that it's about to happen. You are hearing it. You as an addressee have been positioned as one who is numbered among the brood of vipers, so to speak. And so I want to say psychologically, as someone subsumed in this literature, you should be feeling the terror of this statement. But it's only happening in the story. And if you are receiving your daily bread, as someone who has already heard the Gospel of Matthew, you know that you are supposed to hear stories every day. This is what you are supposed to live on, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you hear this every day, you will be in this frame of mind that the Lord is coming, that you are held to account for how you live, that your actions fall short of what's expected, and there is accountability for your behavior. If you hear this on a daily basis, and then you go to work and you see someone gossip or engage in politics to harm other people or throw you under the bus, you won't say to yourself, that person is a rotten person. You'll say, I would do the same thing probably, or I have done the same thing, or I'm capable of doing the same thing. You won't demonize other people. You won't be vindictive. You won't be cruel. Or you will remember a time when you were. Or you'll hear scripture and know that you're capable of being as bad. And you'll show mercy again and again. And when you stumble, you'll remember and you'll show mercy. And more than showing mercy, you will take proactive steps to do what is correct and what is kind every step, every day on the road of life. There is no other way. It has nothing to do with what you believe. Absolutely nothing. It has to do with how you act. You are walking along a path and you are being constantly reminded you are capable of doing terrible things. But if you listen to the commandment of righteousness, you are capable of doing godly things which come from God, not from you. It really is that simple. I like this metaphor that the Dalai Lama brings up. Whenever I get puffed up about how great I am as a human being, as an enlightened person, as a leader, as a person of knowledge, a person of wisdom, I look at a bug and I see the bug is just trying to do what it does. And I remember that this bug doesn't have the ability to be enlightened or to be wise or to be knowledgeable or to make the right decision. It's just a bug. A bug just does what it does. It's ignorant. But in some ways, that bug is more honest than I am because I have the ability to make the right decision. I have the teaching, I have the wisdom, and I don't follow it. The bug simply does what it does in an honest, sincere way. It is more honest and sincere than I am. And I like that because it shows this dilemma. Who warned you of the wrath? Are you going to follow that? This is exactly the problem. We have Abraham as our father. Okay, you have Abraham as your father, but I know all these other guys who don't have Abraham as their father, and they're doing the right thing. 
a la Romans 1 and 2, like you mentioned a few weeks ago. So having Abraham as your father doesn't help you. In fact, those people who don't have Abraham as their father are more honest and sincere than you are. Yes, maybe they're in ignorance, but they're following their teachers precisely as they were supposed to. You claim to have better teachers and better wisdom, yet you don't follow them. Who's more honest? Who's more enlightened? And it's not about thought, Father. It's about what you do, exactly as you said. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned how John was kind of mixing his metaphors, but here in 16 and 17, I love it because he talks about the Holy Ghost, which is the holy wind and fire. And then he uses this metaphor of the threshing floor. You throw the harvest up in the air and the wind separates the chaff, blows it away, while the fruit of the wheat stays in place and falls back down. And that's what the winnowing is. You scoop it up, you let the wind separate what is useful from what is not useful, the fruit from the chaff, the good results from the ground and the useless results from the ground. The first step is to separate the two. Next step is to take the fruit, put it in a safe place, and then to burn the rest, the chaff, in order to clear the floor for the next harvest. It's a fantastic image. I love this image because the Holy Spirit is this divine wind that can separate the fruit from the chaff. What is John the Baptist saying? Bring forth fruit. Because all this junk that you're bringing forward, the Holy Spirit can figure out in a second what the difference is. It's just physics. Chaff is lighter than fruit, so it blows away. And then the wise farmer burns it to make space for the next harvest. We need fruit. We got a farmer here, not a botanist who's interested in all of it. <laughs> this is a farmer. He's got business to do. Okay, so bring forth the fruit. Because I'm telling you, all I do is tell you to bring forth the fruit, and I prepare you for bringing forth better fruit. That's all I do. But there's someone who's going to separate the two. Watch out for him. Don't get excited about when he comes. Don't contemplate whether he's here or not. Be ready for him. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. I love this verse. He's just giving exhortations. He is reminding them, giving them constant pointers from the teaching of how to behave. When you tell young children how to behave, they appreciate it and they accept it because they don't know how to behave. When they become tweens and then teenagers, they roll their eyes, they complain, either because they're lazy or impatient or embarrassed in front of others, or at some point because they don't want to be told what to do because they want to prove they can figure it out themselves. And then when they become adults, they just don't want to be told what to do because who are you to tell them what to do? I mean, that's the human problem. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Human beings are, on the one hand, constantly rebelling against their parents, and on the other hand, constantly searching for their parents. I mean, psychologically, that's why everybody really hopes the president will save them with a budget, or the emperor will save them with an army, 
or the space aliens will save them with a benevolent plan that will solve the nuclear arms race and the problem with the environment and peace in the galaxy. We want our parents to save us on the one hand, and we don't want them to tell us what to do on the other hand. That's why the central commandment is honor your father and mother. And then in scripture, God supplants the authority of your father and mother with the authority of the shepherd, his proxy. He replaces the king, he replaces the patrician, and he replaces your parents with the words of scripture wielded by the shepherd, who looks like your mom and dad, your local priest, your Roman patrician, or whoever happens to be in charge of your life. It's a very clever, very clever modus operandi in the biblical tradition. But that's the problem. Nobody wants to be told what to do. So when you come and hear scripture saying, do this and you shall live, do this and you shall live, your instant reaction is, ugh. And then you hear someone, you know, peddling a few fancy Greek terms and an elaborate discussion about their experience of God at the local grocery store and how it made them feel, or whatever it is people talk about. I mean, people aren't even that fancy anymore in their homilies. It's appealing. So I wanna take the opportunity, Richard, to challenge our listeners to be strict with themselves and to stick with the biblical tradition and to allow themselves to be told what to do by scripture, to really allow scripture as literature to guide their steps on the way of peace. This verse, which seems like a throwaway verse, it's really important. We have the exhortation as he proclaimed the gospel to them. And evangelizo, proclaim the gospel, is already a refrain in the book of Luke. It only appears a couple times in Matthew and Mark. Actually, I don't think it appears in Mark at all and just appears a couple times in Matthew, but already in chapter three of Luke, it's appeared several times with the angel Gabriel and so on. He exhorts them, parakalon, and anyone who knows modern Greek knows that this is the normal way you say, please. This is asking for someone to come onto their side, exhorting them as he evangelizes the people. This is how he teaches. It's significant that he falls in line with what the angel Gabriel was doing. The angel Gabriel began evangelizing in the book of Luke, and now John is continuing that work. The one who evangelized his father is the one he's following, whereas Gabriel was evangelizing in the temple, silencing his father. John is evangelizing the people in the wilderness, exhorting them, bring forth your fruit. Don't get excited about the Messiah. Don't go off in your discussion groups to talk about what the Messiah is going to be like. I exhort you, I plead, bring forth fruit. I'm giving you a chance here. Don't waste it. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.